I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking at chapter 21. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, it'll find it on page 274. 2 Samuel chapter 21, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this portion of your word and we pray that you would help us to see what we need to see from it. Teach us what we need to be taught. Help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to be encouraged by the grace of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would send us out today encouraged and equipped that we might be your people as you've called us to be in this place and this week to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes we use the metaphor of slaying our giants. And you've heard that phrase, you've used that phrase, and uh, what we mean by that is that we are uh, seeking to, uh, uh, to overcome our obstacles, overcome those things that are opposing us, over, overcoming the things in our life uh, that we need to get past. I did a little search this past week on Amazon. Uh, for slaying giants, and 163 separate books came up. Books on overcoming fear and worry and anxiety, uh, books about how you can defeat doubt, books on prayer, books on how you can defeat your business competition, books on battling your shortcomings. Giants, Anything that threatens us or opposes us or keeps us from succeeding or threatening our well-being. But here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And what we're hearing about here is David dealing with not metaphorical giants, but literal giants, real giants. Of course, this is not the first time that this has happened. We remember the story of David and Goliath. And in this passage, we have four more giants seeking to kill David and the people of God. 
Now, today, what I want us to do with this passage is simply to look at the account of these encounters and, and to see what happened and then to think and reflect for a moment about why this is in the Bible. In God's providence, why did he want this to be written such that God's people would be reading it all these years later? And then we'll reflect on how we can try to apply this passage to us today. Now, before I get started, uh, because I know that there are so many in this room and at home who are careful Bible readers, I do want to address just quickly one quick little issue in the text that we have in front of us. If you'll look at verse 19, you'll notice perhaps that there's something that causes your brow to furrow a little bit. It says that a man named Elhanan killed Goliath the Gittite. Now, those of you that know your Bible stories know that David's the one that killed Goliath. So what's going on here? What, what is happening in this specific verse? Well, Bible scholars are uh, not of one mind of how to understand what's going on here. Some say that perhaps there were two Goliaths, two, two giants from the same place named the same thing. Now, that's perhaps possible, but it's not likely. Uh, perhaps there was a copying error that happened at some point along the way. Now, we believe that the original manuscripts that God gave to his people were inerrant and without error. But perhaps there was a copying error, some scholars would say, at some point along the line. Perhaps Elhanan is simply another name for David. Uh, perhaps David was the name that he took on when he was going to be named king. And as he served as king, and Elhanan was his more family name, uh, more informal name. Or perhaps, and I think this is probably the one that makes the most sense, as we look in 1 Chronicles 20, we come along to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles. And there, the text tells us that Elhanan killed another giant who was the brother of Goliath. And I think that's probably what we should understand verse 19 in our text to be saying. But now, as we jump into the text, let's look and see how God's people had to deal with giants in the past. And let's reflect on how... God's people need to deal with giants in the present. So first of all, dealing with giants in the past. Now, who who were these giants? Notice that we read in our text over and over again that these four characters were described as descendants of the giants. In the Hebrew, it literally reads the descendants of Rapha. So apparently they were a known group of large human beings referenced several times earlier in the Bible living as a part of the Philistine people in the land of Canaan. These particular ones came from the area of Gath in, the, in, the, in Canaan, in the, in the Philistine area. They were some of the ones that Joshua and the people of God had been told to wipe out of the land as they moved into the promised land. But apparently, here we have some of the last known of these giants of Rapha. And we see both in other places in the Bible as well as here, they fiercely opposed God's people. Not just opposing God's people, but they opposed the Lord God Almighty himself and all that he represented. And notice how they were dealt with. Uh, we're not told in this passage when, this event, when these uh, battles took place exactly. Most Bible scholars believe it was probably earlier on in David's reign. But we're given these very short accounts of what happened. Uh, we see the first giant dealt with in verses 16 and 17. He saw an opportunity. David was weary. He was tired. He was worn out from his battle with the Philistines. And so this giant named Ishbibanob, 
who was heavily armed with a spear that weighed around seven and a half pounds and some sort of new weapon that he had, went after David. But did you notice who was there? Good old Abishai. We've seen Abishai over and over again has wanted to pull his sword out and do battle. And time and time again, David's told him, put your sword away. What have I have to do with you, son of Zeruiah? But finally, Abishai's at the right place at the right time. And he's able to bring his sword out and rescue David and save David by killing this giant. The second giant we read about is in verse 18. He was a giant named Saph. And all that we really hear about him is that Sibekai the Hushethite took him down. The third one is in verse 19. We've already mentioned him. Probably best read that Elhanan killed another giant who happened to be the brother of Goliath the Gittite. And then the fourth giant, the one perhaps that gets our attention the most or at least causes our imagination to, uh, to tangle just a bit in verses 20 and 21. He was a, a man of great stature. He was a large man and he had six fingers on both of his hands and six toes on both of his feet. And I want you to notice here specifically it says that just like Goliath had done with David, this giant taunted Israel, David's brother happened to be around Jonathan and came to David's rescue and killed this large man. That's all that we're given about these giants. That's basically the details that we're given about these incidents. So we have to ask the question, or at least we have to wonder, why is this in the Bible? God in His providence put this story of these incidents in the Bible. Why? Why is this here for us? Why did the author of 2 Samuel think that it was important to include these historical snippets of these battles taking place? Well, to start to understand that, I want you to notice the motivation that the servants of David had for dealing with these giants. Look back at the end of verse 17. They referred to David as the lamp of Israel. Or it could be translated the light of Israel. These giants had come against God's people. They had come to extinguish the lamp of Israel, the light of Israel. And King David was in harm's way. And the people of God were motivated because their king was at risk. And they knew that so much was at stake. They couldn't let their king be extinguished, his light put out. These giants represented a clear and present threat to God's people. But more than that, they were attacking and opposing the Lord God Almighty Himself. They were opposing God's plan of establishing His people and His kingdom in the land. They were opposing God's goal of receiving the glory and the honor and the worship that He deserved from His people. You can get a sense of that in verse 21 at the beginning where we hear that this last uh, giant taunted. That word in the Hebrew means to reproach, to defy, to mock, to deride. In other words, they were trash-talking God and trash-talking Israel. And the author of 2 Samuel wanted God's people to be ever reminded of what happens when you do that. More than that, he wanted them to be reminded 
and to see a picture of God's faithfulness to his promises. God had promised to protect and to preserve his people in the promised land. He had promised that he would never leave them. He would never forsake them. He had promised that he would overcome all the obstacles that they would encounter. He wanted them to see a picture of God's faithfulness to his promises. And the author also wanted God's people to see a picture of God's sovereignty in accomplishing his purposes. Nothing, not even giants, could stop the Lord God Almighty from accomplishing his will. And God and the author of 2 Samuel knew that God's people need to be assured that the God that they served is an all-powerful, ever-faithful, covenant-keeping God. So why is this in the Bible? The reason why this is in the Bible is so that years later, as God's people dealt with difficult days and hard circumstances, when they wondered, where is God? Does God care about us? Has God left us? They could say to one another, hey, you remember back to the old days when those giants from Rapha came and attacked David and the people of God? You remember there was even that one guy, he was really big and he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and they were carrying all these weapons. Even then they couldn't defeat our God. Our God is a faithful God. He is faithful to his promises to love and to protect and to to preserve his people. Our God is a sovereign God in his power and he will always win the day. And so we have every reason to trust and to hope and to believe and to live faithfully to our God. That's the reason why it's here in our Bibles. Now, how does that relate to us? I mean, God's people today are not... Dealing and fighting with literal six-fingered, six-toed giants who are attacking the church. But we still have our own giants that we have to deal with. So how do we deal with the giants in the present? Remember what these giants represented here in 2 Samuel. They were the ones who opposed God. They were the ones who opposed God's faithfulness. They opposed God's power. They opposed God accomplishing his purposes. So what are the things in our lives? What are the giants in our lives that we have to deal with? That are seeking to steal the glory of God. Or to keep us from glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Well, as we start to think about that, the first thing we have to remember is that we have to expect that there are giants. God has been very clear from almost the very beginning of his word. There will always be, quote unquote, giants that come against God and against his people. Just think about what the Bible tells us. Adam and Eve in the garden, after they fell into sin, came face to face with God. And what did he tell them? That because of what they had done, there would now be what? Enmity. There would be enmity. And that word in the Hebrew means hostility, strife, opposition, conflict, and contention. That's the reality of life now because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And Peter reminds us of that as well, doesn't he? In 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, he says to God's people, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Jesus himself told us that this would be the case. As he was speaking to his disciples in John 16 said, In the world you will have tribulation. You will have opposition. You will have affliction. You will have strife. And so God's people must always remember, we must expect that there are always going to be giants that are coming against God and coming against God's people. So let's take a few moments and reflect on what some of those might be for us. What are some of our personal giants? What are some of our individual giants? What are some of our our personal sins that would threaten uh, God receiving the glory that He deserves in our lives? Well, perhaps one would be a pursuit of personal comfort and contentment at all costs. Now, to be clear, being comfortable and being content are not bad things in themselves. But when our pursuit of those things cause us to not love and to serve our God and to love our neighbors, that's a giant that must be slayed. When our careers, when our vocations so drive us that we neglect our own spiritual well-being or the well-being of our families, it becomes a giant that needs to be slayed. When our own personal comfort and our own ease so consumes us that we have no sense of those in need around us and no interest in actually reaching out to them, it's become a giant that we need to slay. When we are so driven to save money such that we can be comfortable now and comfortable in our retirement, that it causes us to fail to be generous and servant-hearted now, then it's a giant that needs to be slayed. Or how about this one? Drinking alcohol to an excess. Again, alcohol can be a good thing. In fact, the Bible tells us that God gave wine to God's people, to all the people, that we might have our hearts gladdened. But when drinking alcohol to an excess is used to numb pain in our bodies or in our minds, or when we abuse it out of, out of boredom or out of indifference, then it has become a giant that needs to be slayed. Or how about watching pornography? Again, taking something that's good, God-given sex between a man and a woman within the context of marriage and twisting it and turning it into something that is toxic and harmful and that destroys rather than builds up. Something that severely damages our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with a future spouse, and even robs us of initiative and of living life as we should. I talked to a friend of mine who's a teacher in a college and he's been seeing something very interesting happening over the last number of uh, semesters that he's been teaching. He's noticed that in his classes, the young men in these classes are the ones that are consistently at the bottom of the grade list. And as he's been talking to them and as he's been as he's been trying to find out what's going on, what's causing this, he's finding a common theme through all of them. They are all enslaved to pornography. 
And as he's reflected on what is going on, he is he is seeing that they are so consumed that they are now unmotivated and demoralized and they are robbed of any sense of initiative or purpose. Or how about lying? Not telling the truth and being intentionally deceptive. God, God's word is truth. He has created us to be people of truth. And when we lie, it goes to the very heart of who God is as He is truth. So young people, when you lie to your parents, when you either tell them little things that are not true or big things that are not true, when you, when you try to deceive them, that's a giant that needs to be slayed. Medical professionals, when you lie to your patients, or you lie to your bosses, or you lie to insurance providers, or you lie about research results, it's a giant that needs to be slayed. Those of you that are married, hiding things from your spouse, being deceptive, it's a giant that needs to be slayed. What are your personal giants, quote-unquote? What is, what is causing your life to not be ordered rightly by the Word of God? What is, what is it that thing that is keeping you from loving the Lord with all of who you are and loving your neighbors as yourself? Those are your personal giants that need to be slayed. But what about corporately? What about as a church? What are the giants today that are threatening and attacking the church? It could be anything that would try to get God's people to reshape the mission of the church away from what God has told us that mission is to be. God has given us the mission of the church. It's called the Great Commission. That we are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that is, enfolding them into the church and teaching them the whole counsel of God. That's the mission of the church. Any attempt to shift the focus away from that God-given mission to turning the church into just a social gathering or, or uh, an institution that's goal is to make a better and happier life, uh, life for the people that are a part of that church or, or, or that the mission of the church is simply to make the world or the place in which we live a better place to live or to fix all the problems in the culture. When the mission of the church is taken away from the, what God has given us as the mission, that's a giant that is attacking and we must slay it. More and more we're seeing another giant that's attacking the church as it's seeking to lead the church away from its God-given mission. Secular psychological worldviews that say that the way that we are, the only way we are to understand the world is through the lens of the oppressor-oppressed framework. That everything in this world is made up of either an oppressor or an oppressed. And that is the job, it is the mission of the church to root out and bring down every oppressor and to give power to the oppressed. That takes us away from the God-given mission that we've been given in the scriptures. We have to look for, we have to discern against anything that would try to pull the church away from its purpose. It's a giant to be slayed. Or another one, another giant against the church is anything that would threaten to change the message of the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners and that our sin separates us from our relationship with the Lord. But the good news is that we have been declared forgiven and righteous in God's sight only by His grace and only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. The gospel is that precious message that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's love and acceptance, but that it is given to us for all who have faith in the person and work of Jesus' finished, redemptive, atoning work on the cross. The message of the gospel is not only that it is the power of God for salvation, but also that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and godly lives in this life. That growing in holiness, that our sanctification is absolutely necessary. That we must pursue a Holy Holy Spirit-empowered change in our life. That we might see growth and holiness over the course of our lifetime. That we have a deepening desire to fight and to lean against our sins. Anything that would threaten that true message of the gospel by turning it into how to live a happy life. How to be a good person. How to love other people. How to be successful and wealthy. That's a giant that needs to be slayed. One last one that attacks the church at various times. Anything that threatens or attacks the authority of this book that's been given to us, God's word. We're told that this book is breathed out by God. It is the very word of God. It is right. It is true. It is authoritative. It is everything that we need for faith and practice. And it tells us that what God has given us in his word is given for us that we might be reproved and corrected and trained in righteousness. That we would be enabled to be complete and equipped for every good word and work. And so that anything that says that this is just simply a man-made book, a nice book of stories and teachings that could be helpful, that we can pick and choose what we want to follow, that we get to determine what is true and what parts will be authoritative for us. That's a giant that needs to be slayed. These are just some of the giants that attack us personally. And that attack God's people, the church. Anything in the world that would cause us individually or the church corporately to not be and to do what we are supposed to be and do. Anything that would cause us individually to not glorify and enjoy the Lord. Anything that would cause the church to, to, to move away from its God-given mission. And to not proclaim the true message of the gospel. And to not hold to the full authority and goodness of God's word. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when these giants attack? Well, what did David and his men do in 2 Samuel 21? Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, but I think we can look and see in the ways that they dealt with these giants. And put yourself in their shoes for a minute. This would have been intimidating. Here come these giants coming for David, coming for the people of God. And we see these valiant men stepping up with their weapons to defend David. They had to be trusting in the Lord. They had to be trusting in God's faithfulness and in his sovereignty. What else would drive them and motivate them to go out and to do battle? And same this is true with us as we seek to do battle against the giants in our lives and the giants that would seek to attack our church. We must be trusting in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of the Lord. God is faithful to his promises and he is sovereign in accomplishing all of his purposes. That's what we read in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 We're told not only that there would be enmity and strife and affliction, but we're also told that the seed of Eve would come and would be bruised by the serpent. 
but would crush and destroy him. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Psalm 2, God sits in his heaven and laughs and holds in derision the nations that would rage against him, against the, the kings of the earth who would set themselves against God and his anointed one, and we're told they will certainly perish. Isaiah 54, no weapon fashioned against God's people will be successful. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In John 16, again, Jesus says, yes, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We must trust in the faithfulness of our God and the sovereignty of our God. There's a good illustration of this <clears throat> that comes from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is on his way to the celestial city and as he's uh, following the path to get to the celestial city, he approaches what's called the Porter's Lodge. As the path was leading him closer and closer to the front doors of Porter's Lodge, he looked up and he saw something. He saw that near the door of the lodge, there were these two lions, one on either side of the path. Christian, we're told, was full of fear. How would he get by? How could he stay safe? And as he got closer and closer to the porter's lodge, the porter yelled out from the lodge, Is your strength so small? Do not fear the lions. He went on to tell Christian that the lions were indeed fearsome. They were roaring. And if they had the chance, they would rip him to pieces. But they were chained. They were unable to harm Christian as long as he kept on the path. They were under the power and the authority of another. God's people must never forget and must always trust that the Lord God Almighty is always faithful to His promises and He is sovereign in His power to accomplish all of His purposes. There is no giant, there is no lion, not even the gates of hell can prevail against Him. The second thing that we have to do is to remember our motivation. When the giants are attacking us, whether it's us personally or the church corporately. We have to remember our motivation. What was the motivation for David's men in 2 Samuel 21? That they would protect their king. That they would serve their king. That they would not let the lamp, the light of Israel to be extinguished. Now for Christians today, we don't serve an earthly king. We don't just serve one who is the light of Israel. We serve the greater son of David, the ultimate king, King Jesus, who was not just the light of Israel, but is the light of the world. We serve the one who gave his life for us and gave us eternal life. So what more could we do than to give our lives to him? That's our motivation. That we would love Jesus so much that it would far outweigh the love of our own personal sin. That it would far outweigh the comfort and peace that we might have in this world. Thirdly, God's people need to arise and stand firm. 
There's a role for God's people to play in dealing with these giants. Yes, we trust in his faithfulness and we believe in his sovereignty and we remember our motivation. But then he calls us to arise and to stand firm against the giants. That's what Peter told us in 1 Peter 5. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says, standing firm in the faith. Or Paul in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The calling of the Christian is not to fear and to shrink back from the giants that would seek to attack us or his or God's church. But we are called to arise and stand firm in the strength of the Lord. To stand against the schemes of the devil, the schemes of any giant that would come against us or his church. But as we do that, I want you to be reminded that we don't use the same weapons that we see in 2 Samuel 21. God's people aren't called to deal with giants with spears and swords and shields. What are the weapons that we have? Well, Elder Acey actually alluded to this in his prayer earlier in the service. We have the weapons that we've been given. Paul outlined them for us in Ephesians 6. Familiar passage to us. Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. These are the weapons that God has given God's people that we might do battle against the giants. The Word of God, it is our sword. It has been breathed out by God. It is useful to us for teaching and reproving and correcting and training. And he has also given us the gospel through his word. And Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God has given us what we're doing here and now, worshiping. A place where we can come and be fed by God's word, where we can worship in spirit and in truth, where we can be nourished by his sacraments, where we can have our hearts filled with God's glory and our faith strengthened. God has given us the tool, the gift of prayer, that we have direct access to God for ourselves and for the saints. And he has blessed us with the fellowship of God's people. Remember, David couldn't deal with the giants by himself. He was weary. He was worn out. He needed help. He needed others. And we do as well. And God provides the fellowship of his people for us. These are our weapons, the word of God, the gospel of grace, worship and the sacraments, prayer, fellowship with God's people. There's no secret war manual that you're supposed to have. 
You can't come back to the pastor's offices and and push a secret button and have our bookcases open and go into a secret war room where we have all the war plans for how you deal with your giants. God has given you that. It is the means of grace. It's through God. It's through the God-given means of grace that we have everything we need to defeat the giants. So as we finish, let me ask you this question. How are you doing in using these God-given means of grace? How are you neglecting any of them? What do you need to do to be more faithful in making use of these blessings, these tools, these means of grace? And let me finish with this. No Christian who looks at the giants that they are facing in this world, either the giants in their own life or the giants that are coming at the church, should ever say, I am never going to be able to defeat this giant. I'm never going to be ever able to overcome this sin. It's just who I am. It will just be this way the rest of my life and I just have to accept it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that comes dangerously close to heresy. Because in essence, what it is saying is that the gospel is not the power of God for salvation. That the word of God is not true and able to teach and reprove and correct and train. That, that, that worship and the Lord's Supper is not a means by which the Holy Spirit nourishes us and strengthens our faith. That prayer doesn't work. That it isn't answered and doesn't accomplish anything. And that the fellowship of God's people won't ever truly lead to sharpened iron. So instead, trust the Lord. Be faithful in making use of the means of grace that He's given to you. Trust in God's faithfulness for His promises and His sovereignty in accomplishing His purposes. And then, arise and stand firm in the power and the strength of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this portion of Your Word. Teach us what we need to be taught. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to see your goodness and your faithfulness and your sovereignty. Help us to see the grace and mercy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you fill us with these truths, we pray that you would also give us the strength we need. So that not just today and right now, but this week, we might truly arise and stand firm in the strength and the hope of the Lord. And trust in the gospel of grace. As we come to your table now, feed us once again, nourish us and strengthen us for we need it. And we ask you to do it in Jesus name. Amen.